Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. reproducing some of the symposia and plenary sessions from the Society for Range Management's 2020 annual meeting and training in Denver for the podcast. These were recorded live on February 17 through 20. I selected sessions in consultation with the meeting and technical program chairs that we believed would be widely applicable and that would not depend heavily on the listener being able to see the accompanying slideshow with photographs and charts. With the speaker's permissions, we will provide contact information for each speaker so that you can request additional information from them directly if you are especially interested in their topic. This is the second episode from a symposium titled Strategies for Sustainability Transformations in Western Rangelands. Ranching and rangelands are undergoing rapid and intertwined changes. Changes include ecological transitions due to climate and invasive species, land use transitions associated with urbanization and shifting priorities for public lands, demographic transitions reflected in the increasing average age and decreasing number of ranchers, market transitions associated with changing consumer attitudes and globalized markets, and technological transitions with advances in wireless and sensor technologies and access to big data. In this symposium, the speakers ask and answer the questions, how can we direct inevitable change in desirable ways? And how can we sustain the flow of rangeland products to consumers and improve environmental conditions in order to maintain or increase the well-being of those who live and work and recreate on rangelands? In a separate episode, we we provided the audio from Dr. Sarah Place and Dr. Andre Sibbles. Dr. Place talked about strategic connections between rural producers and urban consumers. And Dr. Andre Sibbles talked about precision technology and other adaptation strategies and ranching systems. In this episode, we present the audio from Dr. Lynn Huntsinger from University of California, Berkeley, speaking on collaborative planning for diverse land uses in changing rangelands. So um, our next speaker is Dr. Lynn Hunsinger. Uh, she is a professor of rangeland ecology and management, the Rustici Chair at uh, University of California, Berkeley. And not coincidentally, is going to be awarded the WR Chapline Research Award tomorrow, I think. Thank you. I mean, after a few years of wearing masks in the summer and having to change our air filters every other day uh, and looking at the loss of life in California and the incredible burning of my taxpayer dollars summer after summer, uh, I decided to talk about fire. Um, I'm all heated up about it. So uh, I'm going to talk about what I see as the unfortunate transformations happening on rangelands in California. These are ecological transformations that are very much driven by people, by their values, uh, by their choices, by their outlook, and have been for some time driven by political and cultural features of our way of life, of uh, colonists 
uh, of immigrants to America who saw it very differently from the native peoples. But this is not just a North American issue. It's a, it's a North American continent issue. It's a global issue in many parts of the world. So I'm going to take you on a little tour of this problem and some of the problem solutions that I think there might be out there. Uh, basically, I get a little bit ticked off every time I read about fire and the wildfire problem in the West and livestock grazing is never mentioned as a possible way of um, transforming our rangelands to make them more climate adapted. So I'll talk a little bit about this now. In fact, that's what I'm supposed to do, right? All right. So this is uh, Australia. This year, the biggest, nastiest fire year in history in Australia, uh, recorded history, and um, also the hottest year on record. Uh, in Australia. Australia uh, has a long history of suppressing the burning of indigenous people on the continent, uh, new protecting forests uh, from uh, disturbance and from people, and that's all coming back to haunt us now. Australia is a Mediterranean climate like we have in California. It's hot and dry, eight or nine months of no rain at all is normal. Uh, in California and in the Mediterranean parts of the world. So Mediterranean parts of the world are one of the first places we see changes due to what I'm going to argue is management as well as climate change. Uh, so Australia, hottest year on record, biggest fire year. Uh, Portugal, Europe. Uh, these fires in Portugal in 2017 were huge. More than 100 people died, most of them in their cars. Uh, millions of acres burned. Uh, a lot of this uh, burning is taking place in foreign plant forest plantations planted by people. I'll talk a little bit about the background of that. Um, other places, even in Sweden, are having fire issues today. And a lot of that is about losing cultural forms of management, just like in California, just like in the Southern Europe, uh, just like in Australia and so many places. Um, in fact, uh, this burning thing in Europe uh, has led to uh, a paper that was published in Nature not long ago, or Science, I guess, saying that in the past 250 years, uh, trees have been planted in Europe and uh, Recently, it seems that the forests, these forest plantations are turning into forest uh, carbon sources, not carbon sinks. And there's a huge drive to plant trees because of their role in sequestering carbon and as carbon sinks. But in many places in the world, they're becoming the opposite. They're becoming sources uh, of carbon dioxide. Uh, this is California. Seems like dead cars in a fire zone are common. This speaks to our failing to plan for fire, to allow people enough ways to get out and to escape a fire, and also to how fast and how devastating these fires are today. The campfire in California killed uh, dozens of people, mostly elderly and disabled people who couldn't get out of the fire zone in time. Uh, the fire uh, burned 153,000 plus acres, almost 240 square miles, and destroyed over 18,000 structures in 2018. This fire started in an area that had burned 
13 times previously in the last few decades. It had also been logged in 2016. And if you take Google Earth and you look at the community where it started, you can see that an effort has been made to do something, but simply not effective planning. The roads are too small. People couldn't get out. Their houses are mixed in with vegetation, too. And when I say taxpayer dollars, the damage here is something like $16.5 billion caused our electric utility to go out of business because sparks were the source of this fire. In California, we have the most fires in the United States. In 2018, eight, more than 8,000 fires, more than 1.8 billion acres burned. That disturbs me a lot. What's happening to that 1.8 billion acres from just 2018? We burned massive areas last year. We burned massive areas in 2017. What's happening to that land now? If Polga can burn 13 times in the last uh, few decades, what's going to happen to this land? It's turning into brush rapidly. And these fires don't just uh, uh, cause black ecosystems. They're also uh, devastating to the people who live there and to the communities that depend on those forests and use those forests. Uh, we did some interviews with people whose forests had burned down and they're uh, in large part emotionally devastated. They long for the past when the environment was a forest. We call that solastalgia, interestingly enough. So um, anyway, we continue to have fires every summer now. Of course, fire is unreliable. Maybe we won't have any this year. This is Spain. Um, this is Australia. Uh, people... Uh, again, are profoundly affected. This is the campfire I visited there this year. This is what it looks like today uh, in the campfire area up in northeastern California. California does have a Mediterranean climate, like Australia, like Portugal, like Spain. Uh, it's very dry inside that zone near the coast, uh, again, uh, which helps. And as you can see, year after year, our fires have been, they've shown a definite trend of increasing size uh, and uh, heat and intensity of the fires that we're having in California. And in fact, these fires are producing so much carbon, the carbon that they've produced through emissions is nine times as much as all of California's carbon sequestration efforts have saved, or all our efforts to reduce carbon emissions. We lost nine times more than that than we saved in 2017 from the fires in 2018. So it puts paid to efforts to sequester carbon. A lot of that is through forests. Um, and now a recent paper in Environmental Research Letters says that a typical tree in California doesn't have much chance today of surviving 100 years without burning. And because of that, it doesn't qualify under the IPCC as sequestered carbon anymore. Uh, we released more metric tons of carbon dioxide in 2018 than it took more than the emissions from all of our electricity generation in previous years. Plantation forests in Europe, there's a lot of them. Some of them are still being planted around the world in an effort to sequester more carbon. And they're being planted with species and in places there is, or is inappropriate it was what, as what was done in Portugal. Portugal is 10% eucalyptus plantations, um, and they rapidly burn. 
Burning also releases, in addition to carbon dioxide, black carbon and smoke. And recent evidence suggests that the impact to the human immune system is not trivial. Uh, in a study of primates, it was found to persist uh, for 12 years when young primates were exposed to smoke and to be passed on to their children, these lowered immune systems. Black carbon goes into the atmosphere. It rises to very high levels. It lasts for quite some time. It influences climate all over the world. So what's causing this transition away from sustainability? I've talked about it a little. I'll talk about it more now. Uh, part of it is a government obsession with protecting forests that all of these countries share in their history. Uh, early on, around the time of the Norman Conquest in Europe, uh, huge areas of forests were set aside for hunting, for royalty, and for nobles. Then when trees became a military and economic good in the 18th century, uh, governments started, monarchies, kings, whatever, started preserving forests uh, in order to grow tall timbers and thick timbers that could be used for warships uh, and for other military and economic purposes. Another goal is to eliminate a perceived degradation of what people were doing in forests. Uh, we see that in the United States. We always talk about that as one of the origins of, of our land management system. And now, increasingly, to sequester carbon. In California, our native people, we had about 300,000 is a big estimate of our native community. They burned all the time, very regularly. Um, and manipulated the vegetation in California. When colonists arrived in California, it was a creation of our native peoples. But unfortunately, we find it very easy to recognize archaeological things. You know, oh, look, here's an acorn grinding rock. But European Amer uh, immigrants did not recognize ec and ecological legacies or what, how the land was created ecologically. Um, they saw forests like this. John Muir called these forests in the Sierra part of the range of light. You could see for miles between the trees. Light permeated the forest. He very much fell in love with that. But it was definitely a function of native burning. You can see the traces. This is from the, around the turn of the century. You can see the fire tracks on these ponderosa pine and so on. Um, regular, low-intensity burning. We hear about this from people doing prescribed burning now, too. Very similar. Uh, if you burn often enough, you don't burn hard. You burn at a fairly low intensity. The big trees remain. The brush, the over-regeneration are suppressed, and you have more widely spaced trees that, guess what, are less likely to go up in a catastrophic wildfire. In the late uh, 19th century, Herders, sheep herders, much maligned for setting fires to their grazing areas to keep it open for sheep. Uh, miners, uh, farmers, hunters, Native American people all were burning in California. John Muir looked at this range of light and said, fire, axes, vandalism, they are threatening the forests of our country, this beautiful wilderness. Nature also sends down fire, and that's bad, too. Fire is really hurting our ecosystems. John Muir left us a legacy of, of blindness to a history, 10,000-year history of management. Or as a Native American gentleman once told me, wilderness is a term 
invented by the white man, and yet it's permeated our ideas about how to take care of landscapes. Yellowstone National Park, John Muir uh, loved Yellowstone, helped make it a state and then national park. Um, as you can see, this is a painting from 1870. That's rangeland. It's oak woodland and grassland and wetland on the floor of Yosemite Valley. Part of what made it so spectacular is you could go down into this valley and see all these wonderful uh, mountains, granite cliffs. Now, um, around the, as we move on into the 20th century, you can see that the meadows are starting to be occupied by conifer trees. And conifer trees in California will shade out oaks uh, and choke them out. So we have a, a change here, a shift to a conifer-based uh, valley that now, today, uh, the Forest Service, not the Forest Service, the National Park System spends a great deal of money trying to bring back some of these oaks, trying to recreate these grasslands, trying to slow down and uh, deal with this conifer invasion. And you can see that it's enough that the trees are starting to die in places in Yosemite Valley. They can't grow when they're so close together. Um, I read an article that said that there are six times as many trees per acre in the Sierra today as there were at the time of Lewis and Clark. Um, now, a preoccupation with getting rid of fire, of course, we have Smokey the Bear. Smokey's been remarkably effective for the Forest Service and other land management agencies. Uh, I can say for sure that he's gotten more buff in recent years. He's apparently working out. <laughs> uh, but uh, the range of light has changed to what we could call the range of dark. It's full of dead wood. The trees are too crowded. It's a conflagration waiting to happen, and we're having those conflagrations, right? Because we have simply allowed our forests to densify. And of course, a few years ago, we lost some 200 million trees in the Sierra. They get, they're too close together. When there's a drought, they can't get enough water. Then you have beetles, then you have fire. It's a very bad sort of circling the drain situation with forest management in a lot of California now. And, you know, rangelands are not unaffected. This is the area behind the Berkeley campus around the turn of the century, 1900, Tilden Park. Uh, today, it's like this, really changed, really flammable. So for the golf course, down at the bottom. Here's the Berkeley Hills. This used to be a dairy. Oops, sorry. Now the surprise is wrecked. Uh, this used to be a dairy. You can see the dairy trail going up into the hills. There used to be a milk company that advertised by saying farms in Berkeley, and they made the point that there have been a dairies in Berkeley for, for 100 years. Um, but when that sort of thing stopped, uh, people, you can even see in this picture some plantations of Monterey pine that have been planted uh, in the park, and when all that came to fruition with the reduction and cessation of grazing in Tilden Park, uh, you got a lot of brush. If you go right over those hills to the next park over where they do have grazing, it's an open woodland. It doesn't look like this at all. These shrubs are very susceptible to grazing if you graze them when they're seedlings. Once they're established, you've got a problem that's expensive to fix. And of course, uh, in the 90s, we had the Berkeley Hills fire, which killed students uh, and destroyed about 4,000 homes and was a big mess and a harbinger of things to come. 
Open Oak Woodlands, I mentioned them. They're really about six million hectares of California. Uh, they're changing. There's more oaks in them. When we've done long-term studies in these oak woodlands, there's more oaks than there ever has been. But they're still largely in private hand and still largely grazed. And ranchers have a history of maintaining them open so that they're better for livestock grazing. Uh, so those private lands are still looking pretty good in many areas. Um, but unfortunately, in, the, in many areas they're being invaded, where they aren't used for grazing, where they aren't managed for openness. Uh, they're being invaded either by, uh, both by native species, either by shrubs, coyote brush is a big one, not particularly palatable, but in the absence of grazing and fire will take over a lot of our rangelands. And interestingly, north of where I live in Marin County and Santa Rosa and Sonoma up into the wine country, Douglas fir, which is a native tree, is invading and coming down from the north. And everybody loves trees, right? Douglas fir is a valuable timber species, but it grows to heights that then choke out and smother the oaks. And the oaks are really the cornerstone of biodiversity on California rangelands. They sequester a lot of carbon. They provide incredible habitat. They provide acorns. They mean very much to us. So we're losing those to this Douglas fir and to further densification in Northern California. What about European and English forests? What about these plantations? Uh, before, um, say, the 13th century, forests were places where people lived and worked, just like in California. Um, peasant families lived in the forests. They farmed in the forests. They grazed in the forests. Uh, Sidney Sharma, in his book Landscape and Memory, has a great uh, history about this. And they were used and farmed for subsistence by people, so they were maintained in a much more open structure. Um, the Black Forest, they actually practiced Swidden in the Black Forest. Um, forests were burnt, burns every dozen years or so, uh, converted to crops for a few years, and then allowed to grow back into forests. And by all accounts, the forest structure was much more open uh, than it is today. Uh, grow wheat, turnips, you name it, uh, including all the way up to Scandinavia. This kind of practice was done. And these are not Mediterranean forests at all. Yet still, they're managed, just like tropical forests have been managed by Sweden for time immemorial. So today, the black forest, of course, is black and dark like ours, but still more intensively managed than ours. On the Norman Conquest in about 1066 in England, peasants were evicted. It's a famous historical story in England from the king's forests. Forests were protected. 1700, I mentioned this earlier, managed for timber ships and military purposes. And then around the time of the World Wars, uh, it seems that um, forests were often planted by the state as an expression of I guess power and authority and a reflection of the military value, history of the military value of wood. Uh, Franco planted millions of, or well, I don't actually know, lots of acres of plantations in Spain. Uh, just a lot of land in Europe was planted to forest plantations. And once a plantation was planted, once the land becomes forest, it's often confiscated or managed by the state with an eye to protecting the forest from all these uses that 
peasants, uh, indigenous people, and so on we're making of them to protect these forests. Ironically, that hasn't worked out so well. In Spain, which is a Mediterranean climate, Spain and Portugal had an indigenous management system which um, involved uh, agro-silvopastoralism, cropping and raising pigs in the oak woodlands of Spain. Plants are kept wide apart, so there's a good understory because goats and sheep and cattle are all grazed in these woodlands. Um, you can see these pigs are really having fun on the yummy acorns, and the pigs are pretty yummy too. Um, Here's another medieval character out in the Dehesa. But these systems are still there in Spain, but they're um, at danger of being converted for carbon sequestration and for tree planting. They're quite lovely. And they're created, they were created and are created by people. They take brushy woodlands and convert them into these sort of stately open woodlands. They happen to be the most fire-resistant landscape in Spain. Uh, these are called dehesa, and livestock were been used for hundreds of years to help maintain these tall, open forests that are widely spaced. Here's an area that's been pruned uh, and thinned, a patch of uh, brush for hunting, and uh, oops, and an older uh, dehesa here that hasn't been pruned in this particular year. Uh, this management system really created a discontinuous fuel system that really did not carry fire very far. But these were replaced uh, in many places by these pine plantations because they're seen as degraded. It's degraded if it doesn't have trees on it, apparently. Scots pine, another popular species in, in Europe. Another problem in Europe today, besides these um, pine plantations, is just simple land abandonment. A lot of people have left the countryside and are moving to cities, and a lot of areas that have been managed, this is similar to California, for a few hundred years with grazing, this is called an ancient wood pasture with the giant trees and the grass. Once abandoned, these monocultural stands of trees come in and invade and create a low biodiversity, high fire danger situation. So the point I'm trying to make is that this is a problem. The invasion of woody vegetation uh, is an issue all over the world, and we don't want to let the idea that this is absolutely a climatic good allow us to neglect that this is an unfortunate transformation that may actually be contributing to a lot of our problems. Um, so how can we, I have a few ideas about how uh, we might create more climate adapted transformations in some of these rangelands. In Portugal, uh, the governor is telling people to plant cork oak instead of forests. Uh, he appears with a shovel and plants an oak on television one day. Uh, and I highly, really recommend, I tell this to my students too, when you buy a bottle of wine, get one with a real cork. Don't mess around with the screw top stuff because the corks are the main source of income for these huge areas of oak woodlands, which in Spain and Portugal are by and large privately owned, just like in California. And uh, I have a friend in Spain who's working with the government of a province to, on something called Project Mosaic. And the goal is to restore more of the traditional landscape, broken up by agriculture, used for grazing, managed uh, trees far apart that are more resistant to fire and can be managed to resist fire. Um, I love the website. The, uh, the abandonment of agricultural activities has become more intense in mountain areas, and this is 
Abandonment increases the combustible material that proliferates without management. The next one's even better. Before the mountains were clean because they were the appetite of all kinds of livestock. And the fires are the result of the gradual disappearance of this important partner of the economy and rural culture. So right out, coming out and saying it and promoting it, that livestock grazing can be incredibly useful in preventing fire. Why not? Um, this is from the Yurok Reservation in Northern California along the Klamath. In 1912, a forest surveyor uh, working for the Forest Service of the BIA, they both took a hand at suppressing fire uh, on the Yurok Reservation, said this entire reservation is overrun by fire. Well, now you can't take this picture because there's too many trees in the way. It's a huge, dense forest which is not much use to native people because uh, they relied a lot on understory plants and game, um, all those things that are more common without a dense closed canopy in the forest are important to, are important to native people. Acorns from oaks. Um, this is a Yurok couple who, among others uh, on the, in the tribe, are attempting to apply their cultural knowledge to use fire to restore some of the native, more fire-resistant landscapes uh, of the, Ur the Uruk country. The tribe itself has a prescribed burning program that they're using. Prescribed burning, of course, can be an important tool in California. One of our problems, though, with prescribed burning is once you've got dense brush, once you've got dense trees, it becomes very hard to use prescribed burning. The time to use it, prescribed burning and grazing, is now on these millions of acres that have burned in the last few years. They should be managed immediately to regrow in a more fire-resistant landscape. We know grazing can be effective in reducing fire because it removes fine fuels. It has both a long and a short-term effect. Short-term would be uh, removing biomass. Long-term is suppressing invasion of brush and other species. Um, firemen, if you talk to them, they'll say, you know, where we bank our stand, when we're looking for a place where we can take our vehicles and land our planes, we're looking for grazed areas because that's where we're relatively safe. Uh, this just illustrates uh, suppression of coyote brush. There's grazing outside, no grazing inside. Um, here's one of our field stations during a big fire that happened uh, last year. That, sorry, it burnt up to here, which is where the grazing began. This is the grazed half of this picture. It was where the firefighters were able to make a stand and stop the fire. The city of San Mateo, I think it's the city of San Mateo, in the Santa Clara, in Santa Clara County, uh, public agencies are considering, they, they lease their land for grazing a lot in California, and they're considering calling their grazing leases biomass reduction leases in order to help with that, something like uh, Sarah talked about, communicating to the public why grazing is important, although it's very well known that it's also valuable for biodiversity for reasons I don't have time to go into right now. Goats, we have one million goat projects and companies in California. People like goats. They don't realize what goats are really like. Uh, they're cute. And they, even though these goat people charge maybe $1,000 an acre for grazing, the slopes are so steep and the country so rough that it's still cheaper than any other means they can think of. But on grasslands and, and woodlands, uh, cattle, sheep do great 
and are great for reducing uh, biomass out on the rangelands. Um, and they pay for the privilege. Here they are providing this incredible ecosystem service, as we talked about in our first talk, and they're paying for, paying for that privilege. You know, uh, I had a reporter call me one day and say, you know, I, I just wanted to talk to you. I talked to this goat company, and they told me that goats don't release methane, unlike cattle. I hope the animal scientists are enjoying that. And they don't eat non-native plants. I mean, they don't eat native plants. They only eat non-native plants. And I said, uh, don't print that. <laughs> don't print either thing. I like goats. I've had them. But they, you know, the right tool for the right job. Okay, so, and fortunately, the science is starting to catch up with all this. We've seen articles um, about uh, grasslands, maybe more reliable carbon sinks than forests in California because they do not, the carbon stores are underground, they don't burn up. Uh, and then people are worried about Portugal's killer forests. Uh, Europe is a perfect landscape. And finally, this article came out recently pointing out that planting trees is actually only a small, the stuff about how we're going to stop global warming with planting trees, the amount that you can sequester with trees is pretty small compared to the amount we produce by burning fossil fuels. There's various things out there that are a distraction from the fundamental problem. It's taking carbon that's been stored in the earth for millions of years and putting it into the air. Both methane and um, uh, it, it's a natural process, natural gas. Okay, so choices. We have so many tools. We have livestock grazing, prescribed fire, agriculture, chemical tools, manual tools. We can mix them. Burning and livestock are incredibly effective. You can reduce the woodiness of the forage and maintain it that way with grazing over the long term. You know, Native American people burnt uh, within 10 years, there would be more than one fire, uh, very often in, in some areas. Uh, we, we probably won't be doing that with prescribed fire. It's hard. Uh, it's expensive. It causes air quality. The air quality board makes it even harder. So grazing combined with a fire uh, is a great path, but also doing something now on these lands that are freshly burned is also really important. Uh, they're, in the meantime, turning back into the kind of brush that enabled uh, the fire, uh, the campfire, where the place burnt 13 times but came back to brush every time and became more flammable. I think a lot of people think, oh, it burnt, problem solved. But actually, that's far from the truth. The stuff that grows back some people think with climate change, it'll never return to trees. The stuff that grows back is more flammable than a forest for many, many years. So I went to a talk uh, by an ecologist who was applying for a job, and he was a marine ecologist, not my expertise. Rangeland is kind of the opposite of marine. But in fact, I saw some similarities. So here's a coral reef with a healthy complement, diverse complement of herbivores. Herbivorous fish, herbivorous fish facilitate all the diversity in the coral reef. Uh, they keep it open, they keep it uncrowded, they keep it diverse, and when you take away the herbivores, you wind up with this. And that's, I mean, I looked at that and I thought, oh, that's California. What are we going to do? You know, 
this is California. And so in the words of Project Mosaic, I think uh, we need to make our livestock into firefighters in California, and we need to be very aggressive in this. We need to do more to promote grazing as a strategy for reducing uh, fuels in our state. And collaboration, yes, we need collaboration. Fires don't pay attention to property boundaries. It's gonna require political and social will to invest in prevention of fires, in landscape manipulation. There are so many uh, people who have so many reasons why we shouldn't manage anything. Somehow we have to get past that and really uh, develop climate-adapted ecosystems that resist fire uh, and won't burn up taking everything else with them. So uh, thank you. Let's see what I have to say. Lynn, thank you very much for a great talk. Could you uh, expand a little bit about the uh, role of the uh, grazed plant communities in producing and storing soil carbon? You touched on it, but it, it strikes me that it's the mollusols um, that grow under grasslands that are most famous for, for uh, soil carbon. And, uh, and I think that theme goes right along with your talk but it's a, a really important part of it because of the long-term nature of that soil carbon storage. Well, uh, I have to say that I am not an expert in this area. I assume all of all tend to use them. Oh, use them. I can't figure out where he is. Mollusols, but I know who it is. Uh, Mollusols are also support, as far as I know, the best plant growth and the highest soil moisture levels. And when you have plants growing and uh, roots growing into the soil, you're going to sequester more carbon. Uh, so I, I do think soils are really important. We need to know more about them. I have students working on that, but I am not uh, really an expert in that field. Okay, before we move on to questions, but we do want to hear from you. Uh, well, yeah, we need to move on. Maybe to she doesn't want to hear from I, me. I do and I don't. I do <laughs> and I don't. We um, could answer his question, then I'll say. Okay, hi. All right, go for it. I love questions, so. <laughs> hi, Lynn. Hi. Hey, so I'm just, in the public land agencies, the federal agencies especially, livestock management goals and fuel management goals are completely separate. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you are seeing any movement towards rectifying those things. Well, there's so many complications. Now livestock, oh, they sequester carbon. How can we use them to, I mean, they emit methane. How can we use them to sequester carbon? And there's just a long history of attitudes about livestock grazing somehow degrading the forest, which if you mean maybe fewer seedlings, that would be a good thing. I mean, we have to change our whole perception uh, of what kind of forest belongs where. Uh, I mean, some when we interviewed people who were reforesting their property, um, I mean, one of their views was, oh, climate change, because we asked them about that. Do you think you might plant more climate-adapted species and plant in a different way? Their overwhelming desire was to return things to just the way it was, but when we asked them about climate change, they'd say, oh, climate change, how can my little piece of land have anything to do with this global thing, right? That's a big thing, and I'm just planting my, my little forest here. So there needs to be more like that. But I think one other problem is we've been a little guilty of this ourselves. 
when you were talking about forest management and grazing goals, in that we talk about, oh, grazing can prevent fire, and then sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and of course, anything is not gonna work every time, but we also have never really looked at grazing, I don't feel like, for fire hazard reduction. We haven't studied that enough, if at all. So we, we have fire models that tell us that a place like that canyon in Polga is gonna burn again and again, and why not use those fire models to decide where we might put some grazing uh, at a higher intensity than we often do in California. Um, we could do that. I have a friend who does that with trees. They look at, well, where can we thin some trees and have the most impact on the biggest area of the forest? We could do that with grazing, too. So I think we need to work with, with fire models and grazing. Also, we need to change some of our practices. Like, I heard a talk um, just uh, last year, one of my favorite collaborative organizations, California Rangeland Conservation Coalition, and a rancher got up and said, you know, this year there was so much rain in the winter. It was great. I told my wife, we're finally making it. I'm going to save feed so I can come back to it in the fall when I get done in the mountains, and we'll have this huge standing feed. And that stuff went up like a bomb, just went up like a bomb in the fires that happened in, the, in that county. So we have to rethink a little bit. Uh, it's like so many other things. It's a trade-off or a complexity, as people have been saying. God, I hate complexity. Come on. I want to simply eat the grass. But anyway, there are trade-offs there. Uh, we need to deal with them. And I don't know what to do about that idea that forest management. Foresters, I work with foresters around me all the time, and they don't think grazing is good at all, and that's a problem. Okay, um, yes, yeah, go sit down, thank you. Okay, apologies for cutting off questions specifically for Lynn, but we are getting up to lunch. I'm Sherry Spiegel. I am a range scientist at the Hornada Experimental Range. I want to thank all of you for being here to discuss sustainability uh, transformations on rangelands. To get a conversation started, we've asked Jeff Herrick and Christy Masco just to reflect a little bit on some of the things they heard, maybe about, by the, about these three talks, and then hopefully we will have the time, and we will make the time to discuss um, transformations as a group. So... Jeff is a soil scientist with the Hornada. He's also the global lead for land, the land potential knowledge system. And Christy is the executive director of the Sustainable Rangelands uh, Roundtable and a research scientist at University of Wyoming. So you guys have a couple minutes or more if you need. So thank you. Great. Thanks a lot. Um, those are three great and very diverse talks. Um, I guess I would suggest that the first two made one point incredibly clear, which is that we need to think differently. Actually, all three of them, I think, made that point. We need to think differently. And we need to think differently both in terms of how we think about it and also how we frame our conversations. And Sarah said that life cycle analysis is incredibly complicated and context-specific. How many people in here have tried to do a life cycle analysis? A little bit. Was it easy? <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, it's really tough. And yet, if we want to be able to, A, increase sustainability, and B, communicate to consumers the choices that they're making, we need to do that. One of the challenges of life cycle analysis is that it relies on averages because we're always trying to put data into it and basically drive something based on averages. And yet it's the exceptions where innovation occurs. And so I guess I'd like to make the argument based on these three talks that we need to be all thinking and contributing to life cycle analyses while at the same time focusing on the exceptions where the innovation is occurring. Thanks to all three speakers. I would agree um, with the points Jeff made and then um, also um, drill in a little bit on the communication idea. You know, Sarah mentioned that 24% um, of people think they know where beef comes from. And I think um, it's probably even somewhat more entangled than that because so much of the information that's provided is incorrect. Um, specifically, you know, what came to mind for me was the Lancet Eat Report, which talked about budgeting calories across the population, so everyone gets about 1,200 a day, converting rangeland to cropland. At the same time, they were talking about the ecosystem services that rangelands provide. And so I think making sure that um, the general public has access to credible information is really important. And I think, um, you know, Sarah also mentioned that maybe the beef industry hasn't done the best job of telling their story. I think that's equally true of the rangeland management community. I think especially if you look at the um, concerted and coordinated effort that foresters are able to make at the government level in promoting the values and benefits of forestry, of trees, of you know conserving these landscapes, um, rangelands come in a distant second in in those conversations and debates. And so, I think that's a piece of the puzzle as well. I think it also comes into play within the federal agencies. You know, having the agencies recognize the importance of the rangeland landscapes they manage. That it isn't just all about the trees, even if you are the Forest Service. Um, they have a significant amount of rangeland to be responsible for as well. And then um, in talking about ecosystem services, valuation, emerging markets, um, figuring out how to value, how to find buyers and sellers, how to build those markets is important, but then also how do you target that? So there's the value to the ranchers of payments for goods and services there's providing. There's also how do you make sure if carbon credits are being sold, that um, the credits are giving the most bang for the buck in terms of the land that they're conserving. And so I think ecosystem service markets for carbon are close to coming online now, but I think making sure that that's done in the most productive and valuable way is important. And then um, in terms of you know emerging technologies and looking at smart agriculture, or, you know, I'm envisioning an Alexa ranch where you say, you know, open the south gate, Alexa, <laughs> and it happens. Um, I think there's larger sustainability questions around that, not only for rural communities, but also for ranchers who, when you talk to them about why do you ranch, why are you still doing this when it's so difficult? 
And often it's not profit. It's tradition and stewardship and lifestyle and family values. And I think integrating those kinds of things with these emerging technologies is really important. And um, Sarah didn't talk very much about the US Roundtable on Sustainable Beef, but the way they're coming at sort of raising the level in the pool for everybody is in terms of grazing management, planned management, just making sure that people are being strategic about the decisions that they're making. Um, and then to Lynn's points about the fires, I would just say, you know, there, there are some wins out there. So BLM is looking at targeted grazing, using livestock to manage fuels, and getting more strategic about doing that. Um, the Wildland Fire Leadership Council, which is um, cabinet secretary level, so Sonny Perdue is part of it, um, Susan Coombs over at Department of Interior, they are really looking at ways to make prescribed burning more usable, more accessible, um, even down to having EPA differentiate air quality that comes from prescribed burning of fuels versus structural fire. Anyway, I think that's probably plenty to stimulate some discussion. So I'll give it back to Sherry. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christy. Um, so I guess just to open up the floor, um, we were wondering, I was wondering if anyone thinks that we are, we had missed any major strategies for transformation. Is, that, does, or is there a burning strategy or perhaps a scale of focus that you feel really needs to be addressed? Thank you, Sherry. I think, um, you know, a topic that was touched on but probably needs to be addressed more directly and it's been a real sore spot with me is, is the, the agricultural programs and policies that work at cross purposes with uh, rangeland conservation. And we have a situation right here just north of us. The largest grassland biome left in North America is the northern mixed grass prairie and yet we're used, losing millions of acres of that currently, and very likely well into the near future, due to a lot of uh, agricultural programs that probably have an unsustainable basis. And do you see a way forward for, for shifting those? I, I don't. I, I just raised the issue and I'm thinking about renewable uh, fuel standard, for example, right? And, and some of these other activities that place much greater value on the provisioning services provided by crop plans rather than the diverse ecosystem services we've been talking about on rangeland. So however that could be addressed, I just think either the society or some group of conservationists interested in rangelands, grasslands, ought to bring that to the fore. I agree. I think that that is the idea that, I mean, I think whenever you're talking about single purpose management, you're going to have bad consequences on rangeland, and that includes single purpose management for carbon sequestration. You have to recognize that there's an, a lot of values and we need to figure out how to manage for more than just one. Even uh, in some landscapes, the tree, when they plant trees, it takes the water right out of the soil 
And when a lot of rangelands are converted in arid areas to agriculture, it relies on irrigation, which is not sustainable. So that kind of thinking is something we need to, to avoid. Oh, I think we need a mic over here. I saw one over here. Uh, hi. Um, just to comment on, follow on from some of the previous comments, um, I think a solution that is more holistic and could galvanize a lot of these challenges is the individual and community's relationship to the landscape and taking that word scape to another level, uh, foodscape, the relationship you have to the land. Well, okay, is it a forest, an anthrop anthropogenic term that Hunsinger talked about of a wildland? Well, to Native peoples, it wasn't wilderness. It's their home. It's their foodscape. I'm, I've come here from New Zealand. It's great to be here and hear the diversity of thoughts and practices, but one of the things we're challenged with back home at the moment, the dichotomy you mentioned of intensive agriculture versus more extensive rangelands is, okay, how do we bring the urban-rural divide? How do we dispel that urban-rural divide? And one thing we're thinking about is the term foodscape or multiscapes, managing a landscape in a way that you appreciate it as a society it has serves multiple purposes rather than silo thinking of just food or carbon sequestration, conserving a native tree. So I guess to sum up my point is a strategy could be growing the appreciation a people or peoples have to the landscape and going from there because at the end of the day we're nothing without our landscape, socially, physically, economically. Thank you, thank you. Well, well put. And oh yes, yes, please. Hopefully, this isn't too uh, much of a diversion. But across our rangeland landscapes, we have um, um, drainage ways or uh, watersheds and riparian areas in Europe. They call them catchments, and the idea is keep the water on the land longer with riparian functions. And if we do. Uh, manage our lands so that we have floodplains that are still acting as floodplains and streams that are functioning properly so that they flood often, we can store an awful lot of carbon in those riparian areas, a much higher level there than any other single part of our rangelands. Thank you. Um, so I guess a, a one common theme I'm hearing is um, raising awareness for the general just just for our all of our communities and the, the general public beyond SRM and I think one I think all of us coming together as a consortium of diverse viewpoints at SRM is a huge start but I'm wondering if others see I guess I see raising awareness as one of the kind of leverage points to transform our rangeland systems our social ecological systems towards sustainability um and I guess, yeah, I guess I'm wondering if anybody else sees any key kind of leverage points. So there's like awareness building. And if my question could be, yes, Jeff, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a place where we really need to be thinking about technology and how we engage with technology and how we develop technology. Um, 
people are increasingly interacting with the landscapes through their phones. They go out onto rangelands, they see something they don't know about, whether it's a cow, or a goat, or a deer, or a plant, or bare ground. And what do they do? They Google it. And so I think, or they go to an app, and increasingly there are, there are apps available that, that, that people are using to identify plants and so forth. And so I think thinking about not only developing our own apps, as a number of us are doing, but also thinking about what are the apps that are getting used heavily, and what are the sites that are getting hit when people are out on rangelands. And I thought Sarah's Google analysis was just wonderful. Um, I don't think I'm going to use Lady Gaga, but... Um, <laughs> As an example, but but that was uh, you know that that's really where we need to be engaging. And so yes, technology to help increase the sustainability of our landscapes, but equally importantly, using technology to help people understand what the implications are of our actions and our our, our management. And I, I guess the other thing is just thinking differently as a scientific community about the assumptions we make about different communities. And so recreationalists, for example, are not one group. And NCBA and PLC are increasingly painting recreationalists as one group because of one corporation, which is Patagonia. Ignoring the fact that there are an incredible number, and I mountain bike around Boulder all the time, and I have conversations every single day at every time I, ch I close a gate with the other mountain bikers. And the reality is they're really open to understanding the benefits of livestock grazing but we need to engage them in ways that they're willing to accept and we need to stop the confrontation. So technology, engagement, conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona, and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.